If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's perfectly plausible, I think, that she took advantage of what she had, um, which she absolutely did. Uh, Whether she wanted to marry her uncle is a different question. Once she had married her uncle, took advantage of that power that she could have access to and made sure that she had got everything she possibly could out of it. That was Emma Southern talking about Agrippina the Younger's marriage to her uncle. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today you'll be hearing from Emma Southern, a historian and author whose latest book charts the extraordinary life of the Roman Empress Agrippina the Younger. She spoke to our deputy digital editor, Eleanor Evans. So she was a formidable Roman woman who was a sister, wife and mother to Roman emperors and a hugely powerful woman in Roman history. Um, so perhaps, Emma, could you start by introducing us to Agrippina? Um yeah, I mean, you've covered the basics. So she was, yeah, the sister of the Emperor Caligula, um, the niece and also wife of the Emperor Claudius, uh, because he was her uh, her father's brother. And then she was the mother of the Emperor Nero after she somehow persuaded Claudius to adopt her biological son from her first marriage over his biological son from his previous marriage. Um, and then probably killed Claudius. Um, And the reason that she is so much more powerful and so much more, um, I don't want to say important, but so much more influential in Roman history than other women of the period is that she took a very active role in governance, whereas other women in the imperial family, such as Livia, Augustus's wife, um, and Claudius's previous wives, had very much remained in a, a backseat position. They were always standing behind their husband um, and were always a secondary partner, never a member of the government. The She stepped forward and tried very much to be 
a a partner in ruling um, and to be a a member of the government of the Roman Empire, which not only undermined the fiction that supported the uh, imperial system in Rome, which is that, that there wasn't really an emperor, but actually it was just one guy who happened to belong to this family that everybody agreed was just the best person at making all the decisions, um, but also undermined the legal, moral strictures that were placed on female behaviour, which is that they were fundamentally unsuited to politics, uh, fundamentally unsuited to ruling, and should never be allowed near um, near Roman politics and so eventually it was this that got her killed by her son Nero that she just refused to ever take a a, a submissive space or to take a decorative space she always wanted to be an active powerful woman I wonder if we could expand on that a little bit in terms of the the role that was expected of Roman women in terms of the the moral position they were supposed to uh, hold in in um in, by definition to their male uh, relations. Yeah, so Roman women were very much supposed to traditionally be pure virgins until they had one husband for whom they had lots of children, um, and that was it. And certainly they were never allowed to have any kind of sexuality of their own. Men had sexuality, women were just for having babies. Um, and but at the same time, Romans were deeply suspicious of female sexuality. So, uh, and they were very—they um, were convinced that if you let women have half a centimeter of freedom, then they would immediately take off all their clothes, which occasionally did happen, such as with Augustus's uh, daughter Julia. Uh, so, the ideal position for a Roman woman, particularly a Roman woman who was the wife of a powerful man was to be effectively silent and beautiful and have children and always be in a supportive role, um, but to never have any kind of potential shame brought upon her, which could be done even by being alone with a man in the wrong situation. One of the classic examples is Julius Caesar's first wife, who, uh, when he was uh, the high priest of Rome, a man called Publius um, Clodius Pulcher disguised himself as a woman and uh, snuck into a female-only religious rite that was taking place in Julius Caesar's house, which was being overseen by his wife. Um, and this was caused an enormous scandal in Rome, absolutely enormous. And as a result, Julius Caesar divorced his wife um, because although she had done nothing wrong and she had had no place in this scheme and it was completely done without her knowing about it, she was no longer above suspicion. And he said Caesar's wife should be above suspicion. Um, and so that was the end she couldn't be because she was bringing his reputation down. Um, and that is very clear in all of Roman history from the very beginnings. Um, the Romans believed that they had overthrown the kings, uh, the evil kings of Rome, because a prince had raped a woman um, and she had demonstrated her great moral goodness by accepting that this was a shame on her, even though she had had no role in it, that this was shameful and therefore she had killed herself. And that prompted the Romans to overthrow their king. So that was the kind of role that women were supposed to have. Um, and Agrippina 
uh, didn't do any of those things. She hung out with men. She had male friends. She wore male clothes. She um, just turned up and refused to be in that role at all. Um, and you've already mentioned that we we do kind of know so much about her mainly because of the male relationships um, in her life. So what what are the challenges of of researching a Roman woman at this time? One of the main challenges is that very rarely are people writing about Agrippina. They are writing about politics, which means they're writing about the men in her life and her impact on them. So there are massive gaps in her life, even though she is a really powerful woman and a woman whose life is relatively well covered in the sources. There are big gaps, even when she is the mother of the emperor, where we have no idea what she was doing or where she was, um, because there was something more interesting happening that the sources were more interested in. So Tacitus is our main source. um, And then there's a few who are derivatives of him. But Every so often, he will just leave a big five-year gap where we have no idea where she was, which is a problem. Um, And that never happens, really, with male sources. Um, And secondly, they are men writing about a woman who deliberately transgressed everything that she was supposed to do. And so they fling every possible accusation at her um, because she is... uh, she is a bad woman, essentially. Uh, she is an archetypal bad woman as far as Tacitus is concerned. In fact, as far as he's concerned, she is a representative of the degeneration of the entire Roman Empire, um, which is a problem for getting at what she might have actually done or thought because he has a tendency to mind read her a little bit. Um, and he also likes to paint her as very much a almost a a kind of pantomime villain creeping around the palace cackling in corners um, and seducing people that she shouldn't be seducing. Um, And both of those are very challenging because you only get her, when you do see her, you're seeing her through the lens of her impact on men and her impact on the empire. Um, And never, you're never looking at her as, as she might have wanted you to be seen or, or how, or you're never looking at her as a person in her own right. Um, she did write her own memoirs, though. Uh, what, what's known about those? Um, actually, I love her memoir. We have two examples of her memoir. Um, they're not direct quotes; they're paraphrases. Uh, but one is from Tacitus, actually, and it's about her mother. And she talks about seeing her mother, who was another very antagonistic woman in Roman politics um, who is portrayed as very much an arrogant, angry woman um, fighting constantly. And this is the one example we see of her showing a crack in her armour. And it comes from Agrippina's biography of her very ill, old before her time and asking her greatest enemy, who she believed killed her husband, uh, who is the current emperor, Tiberius, if she could have permission to remarry because she was lonely, essentially. Um, And Tiberius refused to answer her. And then Agrippina's mother cried. Um, And the second example that we have comes from Pliny the Elder, who wrote a kind of encyclopedia called The Natural History. And he included an exception of Agrippina's biography in which she said that her she had one child who was the Emperor Nero and she only really had one because he had a breech birth and she writes about how horrible the breech birth was. Um, 
And I find those two examples fascinating because the genre that Agrippina wrote in was called commentarium, which is a genre specifically designed for writing about war, essentially. Um, it's the genre that Julius Caesar wrote in when he wrote the Gallic Wars. Um, but she has used this genre clearly to talk about feelings and childbirth. Um, and those are the only two things that we know she wrote about, which are two inherently female things as far as the Romans are concerned. Um and so I find it interesting that she never tried to deny her femininity in that way. She was always a mother. She was always a daughter of a woman uh, and she was always having feelings. Um, I think it's a real shame that that never survived because it would be wonderful to have that. She is the only woman that we know of in the whole of Roman antiquity who wrote uh, a commentarium. And it would be just wonderful to have that. Um, so, as you mentioned, the sources that we, we do have paint her in quite a bad light, I guess, um, showing off her many <laughs> dis dis disreputable acts. Um, but if we can go back to the beginning of her life and um, talk about her, her birth in Germany and her, her parents, because her father in particular, well, both her parents were significant figures, weren't they? They were. They were the Prince William and Kate Middleton of their time. They were... Uh, Germanicus is her father who got that name after he had some great victories on the German frontier. Um, and her mother was also called Agrippina because um, Romans only have one name per family and they have to share it. Um, so confusingly, they're called Agrippina the Elder, who is her mother, and Agrippina the Younger, who is the Agrippina that the book is about. So they were extremely young and sexy and adored by everybody. Um Germanicus was second in line to the throne because he had been adopted by the Emperor Tiberius. Um, and Agrippina the Elder was the sole remaining survivor, uh, blood relation survivor of Augustus's bloodline because a lot of the, that side died. Uh, and so she was the last person remaining who had the now divine blood of Augustus in her veins, which she was very, very aware of. Um, and they had nine children of whom six survived through infancy, which was a lot of children in that period. It's a period when Augustus was making laws because people weren't having enough children. Um, and so they were this extremely glamorous, almost ideal couple to lead the Roman Empire. And everyone was very excited that they were going to be the next emperor uh, and empress. And then very suddenly Germanicus died while he was in Syria uh, after he had had a quite public argument with both Tiberius, the emperor, and one of Tiberius's closest friends, Piso. Uh, and it was very widely believed that Tiberius and or Piso together had poisoned Germanicus. And Tacitus says that this is what um, Germanicus believed on his deathbed. Uh, and a few other sources say this as well, that everybody really believed that that's what happened. And Piso was prosecuted for it and eventually killed himself uh, to avoid prosecution. But Tiberius always denied it, and it's really unclear what happened. It's perfectly plausible that he got a fever, but it was a real point of uh, antagonism between Agrippina the Elder, who was an amazing showwoman and was also absolutely furious that her birthright had been taken from her. She really believed that she was 
she was the descendant of the divine Augustus and Tiberius was not because Tiberius was adopted um, and that Tiberius had murdered her husband in order to take her birthright away from her. And she became convinced that her sons had to be the next emperors. Um, and so she spent a full decade antagonizing Tiberius and accusing him of all kinds of things and bursting into rooms and shouting at him, um, including shouting at him at one point that, when she caught him sacrificing to a statue of Augustus, that the blood of the divine Augustus runs in my veins, not in dead statues, um, which is quite a thing to say to an emperor, to be honest. Uh, and eventually, we don't know really what happened because this is a gap in the source material. The only analytic source that we have has a massive hole in the manuscripts here. So we never find out what exactly happened. But Agrippina the Elder and her two oldest sons were, for some reason, um, caught up in some kind of conspiracy and were all three of them imprisoned. Uh, uh, and after a short amount of time, Agrippina was starved to death um, and her two sons were also killed. So she and her eldest sons were effectively, over a very long period of time, executed by Tiberius, leaving just her three daughters and her youngest son Caligula as the only people surviving. Uh, eventually Caligula did become emperor, as we know, and because of the power of his father and his mother and how much they were beloved by the people, everybody was delighted when he became emperor. There were huge parties across the empire because everybody thought that the son of Germanicus was finally getting his birthright and he would be a brilliant emperor. It didn't really turn out that way. <laughs> um, but they were they were completely beloved by everybody and their reputation remained for many, many decades after they died um, to the point where when Agrippina was eventually murdered, Nero tried to originally tried to get a member of the army to kill her, to kill her. And um, the head of the Praetorian Guard, which is the army in Rome, said that there is no way that a soldier will kill the daughter of Germanicus. Um, they just, they love him too much and they love her too much. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. 
Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Um, I'd really like to talk about what happened when Caligula was emperor because he had quite a, a, a different relationship with his sisters, as we're led to believe, I guess. Um, so what can you tell us about about that supposed relationship, how he treated his <laughs> sisters and the, the accusations that have kind of been levelled at, at them? Yeah, so he um, he elevated his sisters far more than had ever been done before by anyone. He put them on coins, which was an enormous innovation. Um, there had never been a named living woman on a coin before. And he put all three of his sisters on a coin. Um and he also included them in oaths that were sworn in the in the Senate. So when a law was passed, it was passed in the name of Caligula and his sisters, or the Emperor Gaius and his sisters, which was bringing women into government in a way that had not been done before. Um, and they were just very, he held them very close to him. He um, They were always near him whenever he was around. And he was very particularly close with uh, his middle sister, who was called Drusilla. Um, and when Drusilla died, he mourned horrifically. He was She died of some kind of fever, which was not uncommon in the Roman world. And he broke, essentially. He fled Rome. He went into a prolonged period of mourning, which was considered to be very effeminate in the Roman world, who were very keen on controlling your emotions. Um and he forced other people to go into mourning. And this closeness and the fact that he elevated his sisters to such a high position and the fact that he kept them very close to him all the time led to multiple accusations that he was actually sleeping with his sisters um, and that he repeatedly and particularly raped uh, Drusilla, that she was his favourite and that the reason he mourned her so much was that he um, was treating her like a wife is the the phrase that's used in Suetonius. Uh, and it's not helped by the fact that Drusilla's husband was his kind of best friend in the whole world, uh, called Lepidus. And the three of them were very much a trio who were always seen around together. And the Romans are very, um, they enjoy scandal and they particularly enjoy sex scandal. And if they see a man and a woman together, then they assume they must be having sex. Um, and yeah, so that was an accusation that was leveled at them. Um, it's undermined somewhat by the fact that uh, Agrippina, Drusilla and Lepidus were considered to, well, were exiled for conspiring against Caligula. Um, he caught them in some kind of conspiracy against him that is somewhat unclear. Some people don't believe in the conspiracy, but I do think there's a fair amount of evidence that there was a conspiracy at the very embryonic stages of a conspiracy between Agrippina and Lavilla and Drusilla's surviving husband, Lepidus, and some generals who were in Germany uh, overseeing their father's old troops. Uh, and Caligula seems to have stumbled upon it somewhat and surprised them at uh, one of their holiday villas. And then all of a sudden, these letters start arriving at the Senate saying that Agrippina and Lavilla are going to be exiled, that they've been having affairs with people, that Lepidus was instantly executed, um, and lots of people were removed from their positions. Um, 
And yeah, that does not suggest a particularly close relationship on the sister's part, at least. <laughs> so is it's accusations of plotting and murder and incest that kind of run yeah. throughout uh, Agrippina's life. Um, and what can you tell us about her return from exile and uh, the marriage then to her uncle? So... After she got away quite lightly, really, she was tried for conspiracy. Um, but because Caligula did really love his sisters, I think um, they got away without being executed. And so she was uh, exiled away for a year. Uh, and then somebody else plotted to kill Caligula and he was stabbed to death in the theatre, uh, at which point their uncle, so Germanicus's older brother, emerged as really the only member of the imperial family left and took over the throne um and he brought back he basically did what uh, all emperors do which is immediately undo everything that their predecessor did and so he brought back um, agrippina from exile uh, and she returned while she had been exiled her husband had died of dropsy uh, which is a horrible way to go. And so she came back really a widow and now a minor part of the imperial family. She had been at the very centre and now she was back to being a niece, which is not much of anything. Um, she returned pretty much with a, a Liam Gallagher swagger. She did not take anything lying down and she immediately had Caligula dug up and buried properly, which scandalised all of the Senate. Um and then kind of got on with the business of uh, of trying to stay alive while Claudius's wife, Messalina, was killing everybody who was a, a threat to her. Although I have an enormous amount of sympathy with Messalina, really. Um, but when Messalina overstepped and got herself killed, uh, Agrippina somehow emerged as the person that Claudius was going to marry next and he got the law changed so that he could marry his niece because that was an incestuous marriage and it is an incestuous marriage it is um at no point in history has uncle niece marriage been considered to be okay and it was not considered to be okay by the Romans but it emerged as a way to tie the two halves of the Julio-Claudian family together um and to enhance Claudius's reputation because nobody really liked Claudius very much. He had There were a lot of coups planned against him in the first few years of his reign. There were the fact that he had killed his own wife was not going down particularly well with everybody. Um, and Agrippina was considered to be a woman at that time who was somewhat ideal. She had had this, she had had a two husbands at this point because she she had a second for about a year while um after she came back from exile who died under suspicious circumstances and much much later um she was accused of killing him for his money um that's not an accusation that emerges until long after she has been empress and then died but it is one that attaches to her now um but she was seen as a woman who had been twice widowed, who had this child, who was uh, a, effectively a princess of the imperial family and who was um, kind of morally above suspicion, as was needed. And so whereas all of the other women who were of the right rank uh, to be married to an emperor had either been married to him already, which was a problem, or had been married to Caligula, which was also a problem. So she kind of became the default option more than anything. Um, it's really unclear how much she had to say about this because 
obviously we don't get her words on this. And this is one place where I would really love to have her autobiography because she um, she must have had some kind of say. But equally, she, as a woman, she has no legal power. She's not a, she's not someone who can really have a legal say in what happens to her. Um, she's being asked by the emperor to marry her. And that's not really someone you can say no to unless you would like to be exiled back to an island somewhere. Um, and also it is the best way to secure a future for her son. Um, and she does seem to really truly in her bones believe that her son Nero is meant to be emperor. That it again is his birthright to be emperor and it's her birthright to be a member of the imperial family. Um, and the sources from the time paint it as Agrippina uh, along with a, one of Claudius's freedmen plotting to manipulate the weak Claudius into marrying her and her they paint her as using her feminine wiles to kiss him on the cheek and to sit on his lap and use her family access to her own benefit which is both very creepy um and they also make her sound like a girl a lot. They'll paint her as giggling when she was a 32-year-old woman who had been widowed twice, so she wasn't exactly a um, giggling schoolgirl. But that is that is what comes through in the sources. But it's there's clearly much more to it than that. Um, and there are clear reasons for both of them to want to marry one another. It is is useful for both of them, both politically and personally, to to be in a marriage but it's one of the most the most difficult parts of her life because it's difficult to think about an uncle niece marriage and it's difficult to to rationalize it or to to think about why they might have wanted to do that um and it, there's a temptation to rationalize and say oh well it must have been these clear good political reasons um but there's no real proof that it was those clear political reasons. It's just a desire to make it feel less icky. Um, it might be that they just fancied each other. It might be that Claudius insisted. It might be It might be that it was what it was in the sources and that she manipulated her weak uncle into doing it. We, we don't really know, but it happened. Um, it's kind of gross and it completely changed her life. And I guess one of the, the rationalisations that someone might, might use that she was kind of this brutally opportunistic person that is one that's kind of prevailed why why do you think that that is uh partly i think because she got so much out of it um she was definitely the winner in that scenario she immediately became the most powerful woman in the empire and because claudius is remembered as being quite weak um, and easily led she basically got whatever she wanted out of him um and she had almost immediately her son Nero was um, adopted by Claudius. Um, that's where he gets his name, Nero. His original name is Domitius Ahina Barbus, which is his father's name. Uh, but almost immediately he was adopted and then he was married to Claudius's biological daughter. So he was instantly brought in as the successor, um, which was seen to be by the Romans, um, really problematic because Claudius already had a son 
Um, he had an eight-year-old son called Britannicus, and it was seen that Agrippina was pushing out Britannicus in favor of her son, um, which she did. <laughs> so, you know, it looks like a plan, basically, and it's really easy to say that it was a plan to um, to get Nero next in line and make sure that he would be next in line. Um, and then, of course, she almost certainly killed Claudius. Um, none of the sources that we have say that Claudius died from anything other than poisoning. And we have a surprising amount of sources for it, um, possibly with a poisoned mushroom. Uh, and when writing the book, this is something I went back and forth on a lot as to whether she did it or whether she didn't do it. And eventually I've kind of come down on the side that she probably did. Um, and possibly because Britannicus was coming of age um, and was looking like more of a threat to Nero. Uh, and those things combined with the fact that she was able under Claudius to step into a governing role, to sit beside him while he was receiving delegations and to engage in politics and to be involved in day-to-day -day running of the empire um, in a way that really shocked people a lot, um, suggested to people that this could only have happened because she had planned it and that she knew that by being the emperor's wife, she could have this power and she could have her son be the next in line to the throne. And then she could be the emperor's mother, which she thought would be even better than being the emperor's wife. Um, it looks very much like a plan <laughs> and, you know, and it does, but it's perfectly plausible. I think that she took advantage of what she had, um, which she absolutely did, uh, whether she was, she wanted to marry her uncle is a different question, but she absolutely, once she had married her uncle, took advantage of that power that she could have access to, um, and, and made sure that she had got everything she possibly could out of it. Yeah, it's a period that is really fascinating. Um, this power struggle between mother and son when Nero does come to power. What what can you tell us about that? That is, yeah, it is really interesting. It is, um, Nero is 17 when he becomes emperor and Agrippina absolutely orchestrates it. Like she has a complete lockdown on the palace until she can come out and announce both that Claudius is dead and that Nero is the next emperor in the same breath. Um, and then she tries very hard to maintain the position that she had had when she was Claudius's wife with her 17-year-old son, thinking that he is young um, and he will be in awe of her as his mother, which is what he should be, and that he will want her to be a partner in his rule. Um, unfortunately, she had put in place two um, tutors for him who were very, very old-fashioned. One was called Burrus, who was this bluff military man um, who had come up through the army and was a, a kind of proper bluff old soldier. And the other one was Seneca, who is 
one of he was a stoic philosopher and playwright who is one of these roman men who's always longing for a republic that never really existed um, but has very clear philosophical ideas of the right place for a woman the right way that an emperor should act um, and the right way that if we're going to have an imperial government, it should work. And she does not fit into any of those plans that Seneca has for Nero. Um, And so it's as much a power struggle between these two men and Agrippina as it is for with Nero and Agrippina, because it's over who can influence him. Um, and there's two or three moments where this becomes really striking. And one comes very early on um, when there is a, a the threat of war on the edge of the empire and some um, delegations come to ask basically for Roman help. And they come to see the emperor who is sitting on his throne on his days with Seneca and Burrus next to him. Um, and Agrippina has been used to for about five years to sitting next to um, the emperor while he receives delegations. It's the only real woman who sits next to the emperor and receives homage really from um, foreign delegations. And so she tries to do this with Nero. She walks into the room and tries to step up onto the days and Seneca pushes Nero forward. And in that snap second, Nero makes the decision as to who he's going to side with. Is he going to side with his mother and let her come and sit next to him? Or is he going to side with Seneca and say, you have to leave? Um, and he chooses Seneca and he steps forward in front of this delegation and says and kind of shakes his mom's hand and gives her a kiss and then guides her off of the stage, um, which is enormously humiliating for her, that it's an, a public demonstration that her position has not is not what she thought it was, that it has shifted Um And he then removes her from the palace. She was living in the imperial palace and he moves her to her own home. And so he spatially moves her out of the the centre of power, um, which is equally humiliating for her. And then in a real slap in the face, he sends her a pretty dress. Um, And the one thing that all of the sources are consistent on is that she never spends money on luxuries, really. She... She doesn't want jewellery. She doesn't want fancy dresses with embroidery or um, lovely pearls in her hair. She wants money only if she can use it to to purchase more power. Um, And so him sending her a pretty dress covered in embroidery that was owned by Augustus's wife, Livia, says to her, that she is being moved into a decorative position and not a powerful position. Um, Unfortunately, that's kind of where the sources go quiet. And there's another five years of this gap where um, it's clear that they have a relationship and she's there, um, but it's not clear what she's actually doing. Um, He does... There is one point at which she is accused of conspiring against him. Um, Just after Nero murders his adoptive brother, um, Britannicus, she is accused of conspiring against him. Um, And that ends in a wonderful way where she is, they send someone to arrest her and she storms into Nero's room and they have some kind of private conference behind closed doors and no one really knows what happens. But at the end of it, she was not under arrest. Um, everything was fine. The people who had accused her were being exiled and suddenly all of her friends had new jobs. Um, 
which I think is a remarkable demonstration of how persuasive and powerful she could be when left by herself. Uh, but but then it goes quiet and she is clearly in some kind of political role because uh, he kills her five years later. And if she wasn't, then it wouldn't be a problem. Um, but at the same time, she is not publicly visible enough to be worth writing about. She's not doing anything shocking enough. Um, there are also because there's no point in her life when there isn't. There are also accusations of incest at, during this time, um, because she's now been accused of sleeping with her brother, uh, potentially with her uncle, and also now uh, with her son, because she is portrayed as someone who is clinging to power very hard. Um, and Nero is portrayed as fancying his mum, and she is portrayed as trying to use sex to get her way. Uh, as all bad women do throughout history. Um, and so there's stories in Suetonius of them riding in litters together uh, and Nero coming out with suspicious stains on his toga. Um, and there's stories in Tacitus of her appearing at his bedroom door and basically trying to seduce him away from um, away from her rivals and to say, you know, I know you've always wanted it, basically. Um, and again, there's all the no one can really agree on who initiated it. And there's a lot of creepy stuff around Nero as well. But it's another time when they're, they're, this power struggle is seen through a sex lens um, by the Romans. I mean, it's a it's a fascinating life and there are so many, many ups and downs in it. It really is. Um and I wondered, maybe it's too obvious a question to ask, but what what drew you um, to her? And then what are the challenges of reading this kind of life and these kind of accusations through a modern historian's eyes? I was drawn to her, I think, probably when I was an undergraduate um, and read, we did, um, you know, you do Claudius as an undergraduate. Is Claudius and his white women and freedmen is a very basic kind of... Um, narrative of Claudius's reign, that he's a weak man who is led by freedmen who are um, ex-slaves, so slaves who have been freed, but who remain part of the household, uh, and his wives, that um, that he couldn't make decisions for himself, and that his wives and freedmen made them for him. Uh, and she really stood out as somebody, one, who had this kind of, she does have this fascinating life, like she has these lows of exile and then she has these highs and then she has this staggeringly ridiculous murder um and then i think it was probably when i read uh, the bits of her autobiography um that survive and realize that she is painted so much in the sources as someone who wants to be masculine and that's the worst thing you can say about a woman in the roman world um and but it's clear that she is very um she very much writes of herself as a biological woman, you know, as a, as a woman who who has babies and cries and whose mother cried. Um, and I found that tension really fascinating um, because it would be easy for her not to write about the birth of her child in a book that was probably written for a male audience. Um, and I, I find that fascinating. Um, in terms of the reading it through a contemporary lens, it's tough. It really is. Um but I think that the most important thing to do is to always be honest and explicit about the judgments that you are making. And something that I try really hard to do is to say when I don't know and, you know, that I am 
this is my version of events other versions are available and there's there's no way of saying this is what happened this is why she did what she did or why somebody did what they did um or and there's no way of saying you know maybe she did try to seduce her son i doubt it but that's me doubting it as a woman in my 30s in the modern world um and i am perfectly open to to saying this is who i am um this is my judgment this is where i've got my judgment from but feel free to agree with disagree with me or agree with me or you know somebody can write another book that would be great (laughs) that was emma southern agrippina empress exile hustler whore is out now published by unbound and that is about all for today but do join us on Monday for more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.